Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I'm going to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. He has said that the video doesn't represent who he is, but I think it's clear to anyone who heard it that it represents exactly who he is. Who, oh, but, 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 from everything I see, has no respect for this person. Well, that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet. And it's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's pretty clear you won't admit no, that the, the Russians have engaged in cyber attacks against the United States of America. I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election if I win. From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. This is part two of our series about a trove of never-before-heard interviews with Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump. I don't like to analyze myself because I might not like what I see. Um, I don't huh. like to analyze myself. In part one, we heard about Trump's reluctance to confront his turbulent childhood, the difficult relationship he had with his father, and the tragic death of his older brother, Fred. In part two, we pick up with the adult that he became— fixated on his own stardom, contemptuous of those whose celebrity somehow dimmed, and profoundly fearful of failure and the humiliation that it might bring. We rejoin Michael D'Antonio at his home on Long Island. He's the biographer who conducted the interviews with Trump in 2014 and recently gave us exclusive access to the recordings. In so many of their conversations, Trump seems obsessed by the threat of irrelevance, of being overlooked or forgotten. In one anecdote he shared with Michael, he dismisses Arsenio Hall, the former late-night TV star, as dog meat after a perceived slight. Arsenio Hall is very ungrateful. Arsenio really? Hall, yeah, stupid. Arsenio Hall was dead. He was dead yeah. as dog meat. Yeah. Arsenio Hall, I've tweeted about it. You haven't been reading my tweets, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> Arsenio Hall was thrown off television. Thrown off. And Arsenio Hall, we got him on the show. You know, he was a yeah, perfect yeah. character because he hadn't been around. He was a yeah, good choice. Yeah, good choice. But he hadn't been on television for 11 years. Couldn't get on television. Yeah. So Arsenio Hall goes on television with The Apprentice, does nicely, got a good personality, nice guy. And it didn't matter whether he won or not because guys that didn't win are doing very well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This has been yeah. good for everybody. Yeah, you don't have to win. Yeah. Tells me that since he's been on the show, he's wanted to get back on television. They wouldn't even they wouldn't even take his phone call. Tells me that since going on The Apprentice, he's being swamped with offers. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, the show ends. He does very well. He actually wins, yep. and that's the end of that. And he gets a show, yeah. you know, a big show. 
I don't think it's going to do very well, but that's okay. All because of me and The Apprentice. And his own way, you know, but because of The Apprentice. So the other day, there's an article in Esquire, big article on Arsenio Hall. And he talks about how he got back on television. Well, I decided it was time to go back. And I went back. Never mentioned the name of the show or me. So I tweeted that I just read a puff piece on Arsenio Hall and Esquire magazine. Uh, he's an ungrateful guy. Never mentioned the fact yeah. that he only got the show because of The Apprentice, which is true, which is 100% true. Everything in Donald Trump's mind and in Donald Trump's experience is about what he does for people. If you're successful and you've brushed up against him, he made you successful and he wants to be thanked for it. He wants credit for everything. He has said that he's a whiner and we've all seen him whine. And what he whines about is not getting his due. The problem is that there's a bottomless need for respect and admiration and affirmation. And, you know, Arsenio Hall can't fill that up, and neither can all of the women he says he created with his beauty pageants or the people he claims to have given a start on The Apprentice. If he were to have his way, everyone would go around with a brand on their forehead that says, DJT on it because he would have made us and owned us and he wants that to show forevermore. One of the most powerful stories that Donald Trump told you also revolves around this question of gratitude and whether Donald Trump tried to do something nice and it was not properly repaid. And that's the story of a lounge singer who he met and he heard him perform and he thought this lounge singer might have a shot at greatness. And he tried to set up an opportunity for this singer to show his stuff to some important people from the music industry. So this guy is a tremendous talent. Yeah. But he's been a lounge act for 15 years. Yeah. So I'm being honored by Police Athletic League. Steve Ross is the, uh, is one, is the co-chairman, I think, with the Bob. Mm. Steve Ross of Warner Communication. He was a good friend of mine. He lived in this building. Mm. He was a great guy. Then he got cancer, and that was the end of him, right? But he was a great guy. And I said, Steve, you got to do me a favor. This guy is so talented. You won't even believe it. Because we're going to have entertainment. Mm -hmm. this, you know, like yeah. for a half hour. Not a big deal, but like right. a half hour before I get my award. And they went to the hole. I said, you know, there's a guy that's really unbelievable. He's a lounge actor, I know. And I said, don't you want to name him? No, no, no. Let's get this guy. He'll blow him away. Wait till you see. So Steve Ross is waiting. And... When Steve is there, everybody from Hollywood is there. It was a big deal. The biggest people in music are there. Yep. I told the guy, I said, you have got tonight a chance to be a star. Mm -hmm. He said, do a great job. So he's driving up, and he was some place down in New Jersey, and he's driving to the event for rehearsal, and he's in an automobile accident. Mm -hmm. And he's injured and gets taken to the hospital, but he's badly injured, you know, yeah. meaning he's in the hospital for two or three days. Not death, but yeah. he was hurt bad enough that he... So he go, ladies and gentlemen, our performer didn't make it tonight. And I, I just heard that. I'm sitting there saying, where do you hear this guy? And they say, Kim. Okay, so that was that. So they didn't have the performance. And I said, 
That's why he's a lounge act. Now, I'm not blaming Inja. I'm just saying that's why he's a lounge act. There's a fate part of this. Not even fate. He was meant to be a lounge act for whatever reason. I mean, he was in the hospital. Okay, I didn't say, oh, you should have shown up and you were in the hospital. The guy didn't show up. I said, Steve, he's a lounge act. He always will be a lounge act. That's the way it is. He's a lounge act. He'll always be a lounge act. I'm, it's amazing to think about this. What I love about it is so much of it is about Donald Trump. First, he's the one who's responsible for identifying talent. Then he says, you know, I'm there to get an award. And before, you know, before they give me my award, I want this guy to sing. It's all about Donald. And then how he gets from this person is in an accident. Well, he'll never be more than a lounge singer. I, I try to supply him with a reason. Are you trying to tell me that the fates are not in his favor and that good luck will never shine upon him? No, I'm just saying he'll never be anything but a lounge singer. This is the kind of crazy talk that he does all the time. And I think everyone around struggles to agree with him, struggles to kind of draw some meaning out of it. And the meaning is really, I, Donald Trump, was going to make this guy somebody, and darned if he didn't get in a car accident. It was bad enough to be hospitalized, not death, but pretty bad, and not too bad. What I find kind of heartbreaking about the way Trump discusses this is that he's seeking the office of the United States presidency, which is a job that is supposed to embody the meritocratic possibilities of the country. And the message he's giving you in the interview is that some people are meant to forever be in the station where they are, and they will never get out of it. It will never happen. It's just the way it is. And and there's not even a modicum of hope. There's no sympathy. There's no belief that that guy might ever get another shot. He's basically saying, it's over. Well, and not even I, the great Donald Trump, could change this guy's outcome because he's a loser. You know, that's really what he's saying is that people are, by definition, winners and losers. And it's a, it's a thing you're either born with or you're not. Maybe this is what he was trained to believe and it's consistent with a reality that he inhabits and will never abandon, and it's the template he applies to everyone. This is the perfect time to talk about humiliation because one of the dimensions of that story was that the lounge singer had humiliated him on some level in front of these important people from the music industry. The kind of mother of all humiliations in Donald Trump's life occurs with a woman he's dating, but not yet married, Ivana. Before we get to it, I want you to just recall the story of how the two of them met. This is actually the way Ivana described it in your interview with her. So suddenly somebody tapped me on my shoulder, and uh, you know I don't like that. Huh. So I turned around, <laughs> and I saw this tall, blonde guy with blue eyes and I said what's your name he said I'm Donald Trump so I turned to my girlfriends and I said I have a good news and bad news <laughs> good news is we are going to get to the table 
right away. Bad news, it's God is going to sit with us. So of course, we got a table and go. And we sat down, and before end of the evening, donor turned off, disappeared. So I asked for the bill, say it was taken care of. I said, I don't believe that the guy which pays for a meal is not going to go and get something in return. <laughs> so we went outside, and there is a big limo, this donor driving the limousine of his driver, which takes him to the Brooklyn every day. And he's sitting in front, and uh, he took us to our hotel, and next day I got three dozens of the roses. I get the sense that this is how Trump imagined you're supposed to sweep a woman off of her feet. With La Limousine, with dozens of roses, it's extraordinarily traditional. Kind of the pretty woman, you know, kind of version of, of life and how you treat a gorgeous woman. It's almost, as, as you referred to earlier with Donald Trump's fascination with Playboy, kind of a young boy's vision of how you meet and squire a woman. Well, it absolutely is. And in the Pretty Woman story, Julia Roberts' character is a prostitute. So I think that she was an object, and the man's wealth and attention was going to redeem her. Donald follows this M.O. his whole life. I am aware of many other women uh, that he did the same thing with. It was always a fancy meal, a limousine, flowers. He sent Princess Diana flowers. He sent her flowers so often that she asked a friend what to do about all these flowers from this crazy guy. And she decided, well, she had to bin the lot every time they arrived. So this is, again, a kind of impersonal, actually, way of approaching another person. I'm not sure he was aware of what type of flowers a particular woman might like or whether she liked flowers at all. It was just, this is what you do if you're a rich guy and you want to woo a woman. And it's woman as object, and it's actually himself as an object. It's interesting that you use that phrase, woman as an object, because I think that led to a much greater feeling of embarrassment for Donald Trump when he was embarrassed by Ivana. So we're now later into their relationship and their dating life, and the two of them decide to go skiing together. And as it turns out, Ivana is a much more skilled skier than Donald Trump. She's a professional skier from Czechoslovakia. So we met on the top of the mountain, we had the lunch, and then ski instructor, I told him, don't tell Don that I can ski, <laughs> okay? Because his ego is so big, he's not ever going to ski. And then Don goes, and he's like at two days, <laughs> so he's trying to make a turn. So he goes and stops, and he said, come on, baby, come on, baby. I went up, I went two flips up <laughs> in the air, two flips back in the air, in front of me. I disappeared. <laughs> Donald was so angry. He took off his skis, his ski boots, and walked up to the, the restaurant. And uh, then eventually we find his skis and we find his boots. So he left you? Yeah. Wow. He could not take it. He could not take it. So we find his skis <laughs> down the mountain with the instructor. He went f- 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 foot bare up to the restaurant, 
I said, I'm not going to do this shit for anybody, oh. including Ivara. Oh, gee. You know, he could not take it, that I could do something better than he Just did. one thing. Wow. And what's so great about this is that this is the woman he marries. What I think is really fascinating is that, yes, she was an object to him, but she asserted herself as a human being. And this is the guy who, with his father, Fred, the tough guy who said you had to fight back, fought back himself as a kid. He would be humiliated by the adult and get himself together and assert his dignity. And Ivana did the same thing. She asserted her equality with him. And I actually think he kind of felt natural about this, that this was a version of home cooking for him. And so if you're going to humiliate me, I'm going to attach to you. And this was the woman that I think was really the love of his life. And she was very spirited, every bit as strong, every bit as assertive as he was. And I actually think that if he had managed to let her challenge him and to be stretched by her and to have to respond in relationship to a person who demanded to be seen as a person and not an object, it would have been wonderful for him. He might not have needed to run for president, but instead he had to obliterate her eventually when she aged and he, in his interior self, didn't age. So he had to hand her in for a new model. But, you know, this moment of humiliation was a key thing for him. He, yes, he was angry, but I think he respected her and it, and it led to the attachment. We'll be right back. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer, no more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Let's talk about the family life that Donald Trump created for himself with Ivana. So he marries her and they have three children together. They have Eric, Ivanka, and Donald Jr. You interviewed all three of them. How do they describe him as a father? To a person, they will say that he was removed. He was for them, the father that Fred was to Donald. And that meant that you could be around him if you're willing to go to work with him. And they like to tell the stories of playing on the floor by his desk and later in life about how if they called him up, he would take their call. And it's almost like I'm as important as the banker who's going to call and you really need to talk to him because or her because you need to keep that relationship going. He 
kept these relationships going by accepting calls and saying, you can come hang around the office. But it, it wasn't until they were adults that he really wanted to connect with them. And they would say that that's true. One of the really sad stories that I didn't hear directly from Donald Jr., but I know of, is he recalls being a four-year-old boy and having his father test him by saying, who do you trust? And he would say, well, I trust you, Daddy. And he would say, wrong. You're not supposed to trust anyone. And I think this is something that these young people had to get their heads around and understand that this is not the warm and cuddly guy who's going to read you a book at night and take you into his arms and put you on his lap. He's going to be the guy who creates the multi-billion dollar fortune that will then employ you and you'll eventually inherit. And that's a far different thing. Ivanka talked to you about this at length. And what she said was that the strict household that her father created demanded a huge amount of respect from her and her siblings. And it ensured that even though they were tremendously wealthy and they could go off the rails, that they didn't. I was raised, and I think a lot of my generation was raised quite differently, um, where, well, that's not true, actually. I think my, my parents were a little bit more um, old school in their approach. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but it was very much, you're the child, I'm the parent, and there's a required respect yeah. that you're, you have to show me. Um, and that was, like, it, it was unquestioned. It didn't need to be said. There was in Donald's own upbringing and in the family that he established later in his own life, this constant focus on respect. But it was respect commanded by the elders and to be given by the youngsters. The thing that I think is important here, though, is that there wasn't a latitude for any of these Trump offspring to be anything but Trumps in the family business and who adhered to the family ideology, which is really kind of cult-like. So when they talked about their dad, they would use the word him and then look to the ceiling because he occupies a floor above them, but it was almost as if they were looking to heaven. And I think that they understand that you're supposed to say certain things, you're supposed to communicate reality in a certain way that always reflects well on him and will never cause any problems. So this is a way of speaking that's full of superlatives. I tried to get Ivanka to even admit that there might be something dated about Trump Tower. When you go in, it's this rose-colored stone and brass, and it almost looks like the New York skyscraper version of a casino. But she would not go there. She wouldn't allow that there was something, maybe a shade tacky about this building and, and not classical. She had to insist, oh no, it's perfect as it is and it will always be. And in a way that made me feel sorry for her. It's almost as if nothing in the Trump world could ever be criticized by any of the new generation because that means somehow calling into question the father, and he's never to be called into question. When I listen 
to the kids talk about their father, it has a worshipful quality to it, as you indicated. And I wondered when someone like Eric Trump in that interview refers to his father in the pantheon of the great industrial titans in American history, which seems a little hyperbolic, whether you thought he really meant that or whether he was kind of programmed by his life to say it. People just gravitate toward him. And, you know, what is it that makes incredible men and, well, and women, but what is it that makes people fascinated by incredible figureheads across history? Look at Rockefeller, look at Carnegie, look at J.P. Morgan, look at, um, you know, any of these guys. You know, what, right. what causes people to be so fascinated by them? Look at yeah. Teddy Roosevelt, look at, yeah. You know, I mean, what causes that? These guys were all larger than life. Look at Churchill, right? I mean, some of these guys weren't the most politically correct, but people loved them for some reason, and they were interested by them, and they were fascinated by them. I think in most of those cases, people were actually, you know, also jealous of them. Um, And I think there's a tremendous amount of that out there. You know, what I can say about my father is, you know, I have the privilege of working for him, but he truly is a super genius. That's a great question. I know as he was saying it, I was thinking that this is ridiculous, but I think it's a Trump way of speaking. I'm not even sure that he examines the content of what he's saying. It's a salesman's technique. So if I'm gonna show you something that I think you should buy, maybe it's a fur coat, I'm gonna say to you, feel how soft this is. Isn't this the softest fur you've ever felt? You know, you can have this for a coat for $5,000. Wouldn't you agree that this is worth $10,000? But I'm going to let you have it for $5,000. So we're all agreeable in conversations. And if a Trump says, well, Donald is the same as Teddy Roosevelt or Winston Churchill, it's incumbent upon me to either disagree or by not disagreeing, offer my assent. So now they've got me agreeing that the fur coat is the softest fur coat I ever felt. It's worth $10,000, and their dad is the same as Winston Churchill. It's a descent into the crazy world of Trump that everyone endures. You know, they really depend on your grace and your social impulses to draw you into agreement with things that are ridiculous. Right, because to challenge it would to be quite rude in that environment. I've interviewed a, Trumps several times, not in the length you have, and they are so gracious and they are so generous. And it does feel like it would be quite a social breach to point out that down is not up and the sky is actually blue, not red. That is one of the challenges. Well, right. Trump repeatedly wanted me to agree with him that Barack Obama is a disaster and that his presidency has been the worst thing that ever happened in America. And he talked about our country as if living in the United States in 2016 is a fate close to death. Now, I'm not going to sit and argue with someone about every phrase he utters, and therefore you get pretty far down the road toward fantasy before you can stop and ask him another question. And then you go back and examine what he said and you discover, well, not much of it makes any sense at all. And 
all of it needs to be challenged. So the task when you write a book about Donald Trump is for every hour of interview, there's a week of fact checking. And then you have to make all kinds of choices. Do I present what he says and then offer the 10 reasons why it's not true? Or do I just let him say it and then move on? And if you let him say it and move on, then you've established a record that says that you agree with him and he will cite it later on to prove that he's right. I can't leave here without asking you about a couple of stray thoughts in the interview. They're not long segments of the interview. They're actually just throwaway lines that really struck me and have really stayed with me. One is Donald Trump telling you how much he does not respect most people. You know, generally, I mean, to be honest, people, you know, most people are, they can be good people and all, but in terms of my world, it doesn't mean they're necessarily worthy of respect. Um, there are, you know, very few people in that category. Respect is a very hard word. When you have, when you have massive amounts of people respecting you, or, you know, it's, it's a very hard thing to do, and it's a, it really is. A, it's a word that takes a very special place. Hmm. Why would he ever articulate that? It's true. It is in his heart, this notion of withholding respect and somehow requiring everyone to prove they're worthy. And I think this goes back to his very earliest experiences in life. I don't think it was ever enough for Donald to just be Donald Trump, the son of Fred and Elizabeth, and to be valued just for that. I, you know, every human being has a right to the life that they have on this planet. And I don't think he was ever given that sense. I think he was told he had to earn it, he had to perform and excel, and he didn't get loved unless he was performing and excelling. And that's what he applies to the world around him now. There was a moment where Donald Trump told you why it is he decided not to run for president in 2012, when he was thinking about it, traveling the country, but ultimately decided it wasn't for him. And his argument is that his career is engaging and it's interesting and consuming. But now, of course, he is running for president. And arguably, his career is even more engaging and interesting now than it was then. So why would he ever run for president? Donald Trump is a bottomless pit of need. And the presidency was the only object big enough that he could imagine seizing to fill up that hole. It's not going to be enough, you know, were he to win. And the fact that he's perhaps going to lose is going to be so trying for him to absorb. And it's going to mean that that big space remains empty and unfilled. And he is likely to go around the world trying to seek attention in the style of a president, uh, even though he's not actually holding the office, in an attempt to compensate for it. So if we think we've seen and heard a lot from Donald Trump this year, I think we haven't seen and heard anything yet. We spent so much time here talking about the need that Donald Trump has for affirmation, but this campaign has revealed more than half the country, according to the polls, dislike or revile him. And I wonder how somebody 
who is so sensitive can process that? Well, I think what he's discovered is that he matters. So if he matters enough for people to hate him or to love him, that's, I think, the reward that he's seeking. I also think that this combination of love and hate is sort of Donald Trump's psyche turned inside out. So he's making us experience what he experiences inside of himself. So he experiences this great self-doubt and I think great self-hatred, but he also has this great need to be loved. And the events where protesters are so upset with him and where his supporters throw punches. This is Donald Trump's life on display for all of us. At some point, your access to Donald Trump ends rather abruptly. And these wonderful interviews, which I know I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to, stop. What happened? Well, I met and interviewed one person he didn't like, and he got wind of it. Now, his enemies list is long, and you couldn't write a book about Donald Trump without encountering many of them. I was mostly disappointed that he ended the process because I wanted to give him more chances. I felt that he had gotten close to speaking the truth about himself and that I had been educated in his methods and could see how he tries to wriggle out of reality. And I believed that we could get somewhere in those last interviews, but maybe that's why he canceled them. So let's say you had gotten those extra interviews and you had broken through. This is a simple and yet not at all simple question. Was there ever anything there for him to reveal? Oh, I think that there is a deep well of grief inside of this man. And I think it's the grief of a kid who was rejected and sent away to New York Military Academy. He adopted this hyper-masculine response that put a boulder over the opening to that cave and inside is this dark monster of pain and he may never let it out. Michael, my therapist would be jealous of what we've accomplished here. I'm so grateful that you let us into your home to be with you and to talk to you about this. Thank you. Well, thank you. I enjoyed getting this off my chest. You know, I've thought about this guy for a long time and you've helped me really figure out what I do think about him. And um, it's actually made me regard him as more human than I did before you arrived. So I'm grateful to you. Thanks to Michael D'Antonio for sharing those hours of tape and what he learned from them. If you haven't yet heard part one of our series, you should go back and listen. The Run-Up is a production of The New York Times. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. Samantha Hennig is our editorial director. We're produced by Vanessa Romo, Pedro Rosado, and Diantha Parker. With special thanks to Dagny Salas, Carolyn Ryan, and Sam Dolnick.